Hey, what's up, my friends? My name is Joshua Luke Smith, and this is the Pilgrimage Podcast for the curious, creative, and contemplative soul. And I have a massive smile on my face right now because it's been a while, and I love doing this so much. We're starting a new series today called In the Company of Failures and Fools. I've been working on this new series for a little bit of time and it just feels like now is the right moment to share it. This is a series for anyone who feels like they've missed their moment. It's for the dropout, it's for the divorce, it's for the bereaved and the betrayed. It's for the victim and it's for the guilty. And this is for anyone who feels like they've fallen down, like they've failed and would call themselves a fool. This series dives into my own stories and into ancient wisdom stories from the Hebrew and Christian tradition. Now we're talking about what happens when it all goes wrong. And more importantly, where we go and who we become as a result. I can't wait to get started. Before I do, not only does today mark the launch of this series, it also marks the launch of the Pilgrimage Co. And I know I've been telling you about this for ages. I've been working on it for even longer. And I just haven't wanted to launch it until it felt ready. And today's that day. The Pilgrimage Co., in many respects, it it feels like what I'm here to do, to help people become curious again, to create spaces to harness our creativity and find expression of it for it, and to also foster contemplation in our life, to, to touch the depths of what it means to be here and the experiences that we have. And so when you sign up to the Pilgrimage Co., you get access to a ton of stuff that we've been developing over the last year. We have courses, digital retreats. We have conversations, this kind of sub-podcast to this one called Pilgrimage Co. Conversations. We have community gatherings once a month. We have meditations released. We have blog posts released. We have all these different uh, expressions to help you in those three areas of curiosity creativity and contemplation and I would love to have you a part of it so this month the first conversation that we're launching is one I had earlier in the year with John Mark McMillan the poet and the prophet and just to whet your appetite here's a little taster Jesus doesn't say uh, I'm above you Jesus imagine all the gods hanging out in Olympus um, and Jesus decides I'm going to leave, right? I'm, I have it all, right? It's like, I have it all. And so I imagined Jesus being the God who said, I'm leaving. Uh, oh, dude, that imagery. <laughs> Oof. I don't know. So then Jesus becomes like us. He lives alongside us. And just to prove that um, he's not above us or that anything that comes at us he decides to experience even the worst of what uh humanity has to endure and so it's like i i can't tell you why god allows suffering in the world but what i can tell you is that if jesus is god and i believe he is if god is like jesus then god experiences all of it so god doesn't always give you answers he doesn't always give you an escape but it's like god will always give you himself and it's almost like god is saying i know what you're going through i feel what you're going through and not only have i felt it i'm feeling it with you now and so it's like god is fellowshipping with our sufferings and um And that, in one sense, is maybe even more profound than the God who's like the escape hatch rescue God. And it it doesn't mean that God isn't the escape hatch God. But but there is something to this idea that like the power that created the world is not foreign from you, even in the even in your worst days. God is not far away from you. I mean, come on, man. I've heard the, I was in the conversation and that whets my appetite. So I'd love for you to hear it. I'd love for you to sign up today and join us on this journey. The first event happens this month, this November. It's called Makers and Seekers. 
and it's going to be an uh, incredible environment. We're going to hear some beautiful art from various people. We're going to talk about a spiritual path. We're going to talk about creative expression. The guest this month is none other than my beautiful darling wife, Kara Anne Marie, who's going to be talking to us about emotional well-being, navigating the terrain and landscape of your emotions. And uh, it's going to be special. So you can sign up today, thepilgrimage.co. All right, without further ado, let's kickstart this new series. If you are a you know, faithful listener to the podcast, you know that this time every year we launch a new series. Last year it was The Kingdom is Yours. The year before that was The Joy of Discipline. This series will run about till the middle of December, five, six episodes. Then we're going to have a special episode just uh, in time for Christmas. Take a little break and then come back in January with a whole new series. I've wanted to launch this series for a while. I was going to do it earlier in the year. I just felt like today was the right time. This moment was the right time. Part of that was because I was releasing a ton of things. I was in the process of dropping my debut album, which is out now, a little plug, The Void. Um, And in that process, you're very kind of focused on exporting. You're very focused on like giving the space and the time for this body of work that you've created and I didn't want to distract from that but also I wanted to have a bit of space from promoting to dive into these conversations because there's a sensitivity to this series it's in the title in the company of failures and fools I don't know if you've ever been called a failure I don't know if you've ever been called a fool I don't know if you ever felt like a failure I don't know if you ever felt like a fool I have and I mean, to even approach those moments, those experiences, it requires space. And it just feels like we have the space now to do that. So this is episode one in the company of failures and fools. And that title kind of gives this whole series away. Whether or not you hear it and you relate a moment in your life to one of those words, failure, fool, maybe there's a moment that comes to mind straight away of that's where I failed, that's where I felt like a failure, that's where I was foolish, that's where I felt like a fool whether you that registers or not the journey that we're going to go on this series is exploring how we are constantly in one time or another in some one space or another we are in the presence of failures and fools and never more so than when we're on our own (laughs) never more so than when we're on our own and that's the point and these are two words that I think we abstain from Like we don't want to be associated with. We don't want to be a failure. We certainly don't want to be a fool. And yet it's in these two words, in failure and in foolishness, we can actually touch the most beautiful and precious and profound experiences of our life and getting to be here at all. We get to bear witness to the real wonder of being here when we're not terrified of being labeled either a failure or a fool. And what I want to do is I want to dive into the stories of my tradition, the the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, to look at some examples of people failing and being fools and also share some of my own to create a bit of a wider story around the words, around the phrases. It's important to embrace your tradition. It's important to acknowledge that there is a heritage and a story that shape our lives. And I think we live in a time especially in our current like generate my, my generation in that kind of millennial space we're, we're kind of adverse to some of the traditions some of the faith expressions because we don't want to feel confined by it we don't want to feel defined and therefore confined by it we want this really expansive open-ended kind of universal approach to life and I get it I think there's some real beauty in it the reality is wherever we want to go for wisdom That requires someone of that space or that community to have done the work, to have done the deep scuba dive into their stories and into their heritage, to be able to come up to the top with a thought or a profound idea that you might just put in a caption or, you know, share on social media, but has actually cost hundreds, if not thousands of years of understanding and nurturing and development. And we run the risk of being very shallow people who touch loads of different points of inspiration and understanding, but with no real depth to ourselves. And I think a huge part of that is a fear of being confined, a fear of 
potentially being wrong or a fear at least of being known for something that has limitations around it. And the reality is without those limitations, we don't have a true sense of liberation. There was a study that was done with, with children and they would, they would see how these children behaved in a playground that didn't have fencing around it. And what they found was the children who were in the playground that did have fencing around it were much more engaged with the play area, much more adventurous, much more expressive in their joy. Whilst the ones who didn't have a fencing around it, for whatever reason, felt less confident to engage in a playful, joyful, liberated way. Boundaries and limitation actually is an incredible context for liberation. And this series is going to dive pretty deep into the Christian Judeo tradition. And whether you approach these stories with a familiarity or whether you approach them with a disdain, all I ask is that you would hear from them a point of wisdom and understanding that could bring liberation to wherever, wherever you are. Yeah, there are some limitations around them. Yeah, there are some objective truths and objective claims made within them. And yet, Henry now said this, within the particular, you'll find the universal. And within the universal, you'll define the particular. So when I share my particular story, I'm really connecting with yours. If I'm constantly sharing the story of some abstract, vague, unknown person or example, you're never going to really connect with it because it has no particular substance to it. But as soon as I make it my own, as soon as I bring you into a particular lived experience, there are, there's a relatability that happens. That's why I love the way the Gospel of John in the New Testament begins. It says, the word was God, the word was with God, the word became flesh. And in the Gospel of John, he, he, he sets up this incredibly poetic, profound, prophetic image of God, this very massive, universal word, God, clothing himself in skin and bones, which ultimately looks like Jesus. And the universal becomes the particular. It, it's, it's incarnation. And so... That was a huge riff that I wasn't really even planning on doing, but I hope it sets us up a little bit. I feel like to begin a series on failure and fools, we got to start right at the beginning. I mean, we have to start at the, the right at the beginning. I want to start with one of the earliest stories of failure and foolishness. And honestly, I think it's a story that has deeply formed our understanding of failure and foolishness and the way that we view what it means to be a fool and what it means to be a failure in our lives now. So we're going back, I don't know, nearly 6,000 years to the story of Genesis, the Hebrew poetic book of Genesis that it includes so many things. And one of the main things that it's known for is the story of creation, the Hebrew story of creation. And if you just do a little research, you will find that there are, I mean, countless Countless stories of creation. You got everything from the Greeks and their mythology that begins with this narrative of chaos and void and nothingness from which the earth is conceived and born. And that just goes straight into these massive war, epic war stories. And you have the, the, the ancient stories of Mesopotamia that talks about the gods loving union, the, the kindling of union giving birth to sky and sea. And then you have the Hindu stories of the god Brahma who, and this is amazing, creates through thought alone and buries this seed into the ground which becomes an egg and then the egg is split in half and half of the shell becomes the sky and the other half becomes the earth. And then you have the stories of the scholars and the intellects, Stephen Hawkins, who said, look, my, my simplest assumption in all of this is that there is no God. And there is no one who created the universe and no one who directs our fate. And then the Hebrew story of creation, the one that I'm with, most familiar with, and you may be as well, just culturally. These stories are profound because how something begins is so defining. And so these different stories and different ideas and theories of creation really 
have so much to do with the definition that we have of our humanity and the world that we find ourselves in. And the story of Genesis, the creation story of Genesis, is probably the earliest story that I heard around what happens when you fail and what it means to be a fool. And you, you know where I'm going with this, I'm sure. We have the story of God creating Adam and Eve, creating mankind out of the dust and the wood for Adam in Hebrew and the word for the earth in Hebrew are so similar. And earlier translations, you, you can get Adam more accurately translated to the word earthling, you know, this deep interconnection between mankind and the earth. And it's stunning. It's beautiful imagery. It's so poetic. It's so profound. And Adam and Eve grow up and they, they walk with God in the cool of the day. And it's a beautiful, loving relationship, union. And then God says, look, you can enjoy this place, this beautiful paradise, Eden, this garden. Just don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens? They do eat from it. They're deceived and they do eat from it. And then the story that I grew up, the way that I grew up understanding this story, at least, is that at that point, they're banished. They've sinned. They have failed. And the consequence to that failure is an almighty punishment of exile. And from the very kind of earliest memories I have of that story and the way that it impacted me in my faith, in my spirituality, but also in my understanding of who I am, was this seed of, if I fail, then I'm exiled, right? And so there's this doctrine in the Christian tradition it's called the doctrine of original sin. And it, it didn't always exist in our, in our tradition. But I feel like we have to start there because whether or not you relate to this tradition, whether or not you have any kind of concept for this phrase, original sin, this idea has so permeated our world, our society, our culture, our personhood, that I think it probably still connects and it probably still affects you in one way or another. So let me let me get particular. Let me dive a little bit down into the history. The, the early church, and by early, I mean people that were literally walking with Jesus when he was walking on the earth, like literally with him on earth. The early church didn't have a doctrine called the doctrine of original sin. The Jews don't have a doctrine called the doctrine of original sin because they didn't view the creation story like it was later come to be understood, right? So throughout the first few centuries of the church and most prominently in, in the fourth century, third, third, fourth century with Augustine, who was this powerhouse of a theologian and a philosopher and a thinker, it didn't have such prominence. And then he comes along and he develops some earlier thinking around the concept, but he really takes it to the next level. And he really compounds it as a pillar of understanding within the Christian faith that because of Adam and Eve doing what they did, this idea that every single person is now affected with the disease of sin because of their failure and because of their falling. Now, there's some, there's some real difficulties with this from the get-go because Augustine's understanding of creation, Augustine's understanding of the book of Genesis was incredibly different to the Jewish understanding of the book of Genesis. So even the reading of it, even the sort of translations of it were so far removed from the earliest versions and concepts of the text. You have a story of creation that happens really over three chapters. And chapter three is where it all goes wrong. But even chapter one and chapter two, which tell the story of everything coming into being, you know, you know, the, you know, the headliners, let there be light. God spoke into the cosmic void, let there be light. And everything is, is birthed in this beautiful, poetic outworking of God's affection. He makes mankind and womankind and he rests on, this, on the last day after creating them. So mankind's first experience of God was a God at rest, a father who wasn't working. It's beautiful, it's so profound. But even those first two chapters, they're very different. Stylistically, they're written quite differently. The accounts of what happens in creation is quite different. So they're already there's an approach to the book which isn't, this is a literal <laughs> telling of how the earth was actually made in, you know, 
however many days. But this is, very much like the other wisdom traditions, this is an imagining of how things came to be with some incredibly fundamental and powerful, useful ideas that create the fabric of what it means to be here. Really powerful and really important. Really important. But not necessarily to be taken literally in the way that Augustine did. Now, why is that problematic? Because what Augustine said was, well, okay, since Adam and Eve failing, every single person that has been born since them, them being the kind of original humans, this this disease of sin has been passed on and passed on and passed on and passed on and passed on. It goes down and down, down, down. And there's other scriptures in, 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 in the Bible, Romans, uh, the book of Romans in the New Testament being, being one of the more kind of commonly used Romans 5 that Augustine and others would have used to amplify and compound this theology of original sin but it was problematic because Augustine had a very poor understanding of Greek so when he was even reading the New Testament he had a really difficult way difficult task of understanding it and his interpreters the people that were helping him understand it got some words incredibly wrong and actually gave him a real misunderstanding of it so Augustine's whole approach to original sin because of Romans Five, which talks about this connection between Adam and Jesus, sin entering the world through Adam and righteousness coming to the world through Christ. He, he made this genuine uh, connection between the two people, Adam and Jesus, and said that there was a, a, you know, a lineage of sin from Adam that was passed down through someone having sex and giving birth. And so sexuality and sin became deeply entwined from that point. So that's in the early centuries of the church, but it's compounded throughout the rest of church history, especially up to the 15th, 16th century, when you got the reformers coming in, you got Luther, you got Calvin, and they just go to town on this. And so here we are today, and so much of this thinking has been ingrained into the way that we view what it means to sin, to fail, to miss the mark. We're still living in the aftermath of deep connections between sexuality and sinfulness. It creates a lot of difficult conversations that the church has had to wrestle with over the years because when does someone become accountable for their sin? There's been this big debate over the, the, the age of accountability and what did it mean for Jesus to be born of a woman that had a you know normal, mortal, earthly mother and father? Surely if sin was passed down through sexuality and through people having sex and giving birth, then Mary was a sinner. And how was that not passed on to Jesus? Because he was half Mary and half God. So, or maybe she had to be immaculately conceived to make her perfect. But if she was immaculately conceived, then does that make her God? And then where, how far back do you go? When is a child accountable for their sins? And if there's a cutoff point, if it's 12 years old, does it make more moral and ethical sense to kill the child before they turn to an age where they're accountable for it. These, I mean, I'm just skimming the surface of some of the problems and some of the difficulties with these ideas. And really, where I want to kind of draw the sort of history side of this to, to a close is when the Apostle Paul wrote about sin and he wrote about sin entering the world through Adam, I don't believe, and this isn't just me saying, this is my personal feeling, I don't believe because of a, uh, you know, an integrated reading of everything else that he wrote in the New Testament and the way that the early church understood him, I don't believe that Paul had any, any kind of um, conviction that sin was passed down biologically. I think Paul's conviction was that sin is the result of a spiritual paradigm and a spiritual battle. And that when the story in Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve sinned, it was because they were coming under what you might call a spiritual stronghold. They were being deceived. And this, this feels a lot more congruent with what Paul wrote throughout the, the scriptures, Ephesians and Corinthians. He talked about spiritual warfare that's his phrase spiritual warfare he said the battle is not flesh and blood but within the spiritual realm within principalities and powers of darkness so the story of genesis the story of adam and eve is a story 
of what happens when human beings don't believe the truth, when human beings don't put their foot forward with trust, but put their foot forward with pride. And the Jewish understanding of Genesis, again, was so different, and there's so many different ways of viewing it, rather than they did something wrong and they were banished. A more coming-of-age story, a story about earthlings, a story about the earliest, earliest expression of humanity growing up and hitting that point that we all hit at one point or another, where it all goes wrong. And we start a new chapter of our lives where we're accountable for the decisions that we've made, but we also have to lean more heavily upon others to help us become who we truly are. And that's the story that I've begun to see in Genesis, because it isn't like they're exiled. Why not? Because God leaves Eden too. God leaves Eden as well. You go all the way to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and God is walking with Adam and Eve again. God is walking with mankind and womankind all over again, all of humankind. And there isn't a moment in the scriptural arc of the story where God isn't reconciled and walking with his humanity right from the beginning. It's all the way through. And I see it less as a banishing and more as a commissioning. Because in our life, there are these moments that define and shape us when things go hugely and critically wrong. Is there not? I'm sure you can think of it in your own life, and I know that it's easy for me to think of it in mine. But those are the moments where we come of age. Like Those are the moments where we get to ask the really difficult questions of who we are and what we're about and what we stand for and what our convictions are and how we want to live out the next day You know, in response to how we've lived out today. So the origin story for me isn't a story of banishment. It's a story of commissioning. It's a story in its earliest, in its earliest kind of narrative is a story of God looking at humanity and saying, this is very, very good. That's the story. That, that's my tradition is a story where God looks at humanity and says, this is very, very good. I love how Dr. Mark Batson puts it. This is, this is a beautiful phrase. He says, humanity's earliest memory is being blessed by God. Humanity's earliest memory is being blessed by God. I don't know if you have a memory in your life where you have been blessed, where someone has blessed you, when someone has looked into your eyes and spoken a blessing over you, into your soul and said something that profoundly affirms the deepest part of who you are. It's so beautiful. Some of you, might be thinking about various points in the scriptures right now that you feel contradict this. And I just want to invite you into a little bit more of a, I guess I would say an integrated view of the whole story that the psalmist writes in Psalm 51. He talks of being conceived in sin. And it, it wasn't the fact that the act of conception was sin, but rather it, as a result of being conceived at all, you enter a world that's at war. You, en you enter a war that you had no choice in joining. It's just here. And now you present it with these two stories. What do you believe to be the truest thing about you in the world that we're in? That we're a world that is broken and falling down and is at war with itself, or that we are a world and a, a race, a humankind that is blessed, that our earliest, me earliest memory is being blessed and affirmed by God. There's a psychologist, um, Adler, and if you've read the book, The Courage to Be Disliked, it's a beautiful book, profound book, you'll know about Adler. He, he would say this thing, he was a psychotherapist, and he would say, tell me your earliest memory. And when his client would tell him, he would then say, and so that is your life. Like your earliest memory shapes you, defines you. Our origin stories, our creation stories shape us. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about sin entering the world. And I think what he's doing here is he's addressing the fact that Adam, which literally means mankind, this kind of image of mankind, willingly submits himself, gives himself to the adversary, to the accuser within this war, right? And what's so powerful about it, 
powerful about our creation story is it kind of happens all over again in the story of Jesus on earth. So you have Adam, mankind, meeting this adversary, this accuser, right, that, that's, that's imagined in this kind of picture of a snake in Genesis that suggests to Adam and Eve that perhaps God isn't who he says he is. And he does that in a most subtle way. He says, I know you were told not to eat from this tree, but the reason that you were told not to eat from this tree was because God was afraid that if you were to eat from the tree, you'd become like him and effectively you'd be a threat. And so it sows a seed of distrust in them. It gives them reason to question their earliest memory of blessing. It gives them a reason to call into question who they know God, their, their father, their mother to be. And in that state of panic and, you know, flusteredness, they choose to eat from the apple. It's this like very particular story with a very universal nature to it. Because we're faced with that every single day. All of our memories of failure and feeling like fools so often comes from these particular instances where we're caused to distrust what we know to be truest about ourselves, God and the world that we live in. And so it's deeply profound that when Jesus comes, who is referred to as the new Adam, when Jesus comes, one of the first things that happens to Jesus, I mean, this is like, I think in the Gospel of Mark, it's within the first two chapters. Jesus, it says, is driven out into the wilderness. He's baptized, and then he's driven out into the wilderness. And what happens when he's out into the wilderness? That voice comes along again. That voice that was there right at the beginning with the first Adam, and the voice, ironically, invites him to eat. He says, you must be hungry out here in the desert. You must be hungry out here in the wilderness. Well, you have the power within you to turn that stone into some bread. So do it. But Jesus, unlike Adam, restrains himself. And he comes back with this incredible phrase. He says, no, for man cannot live on bread alone but from every word out of the mouth of God. Now, let me tell you, are you ready? Let me tell you the last words that came out of the mouth of God that Jesus heard. Let me tell you what they were, because when he was baptized, he came out of the water and it says, the heavens opened and a voice from heaven spoke and said, behold, this is my son who I love and in whom I am truly proud. The last words that he heard from God were words of blessing and affirmation and encouragement and fulfillment. And those words were ringing louder in his ear, louder than anything else. And so when the voice of the adversary and the accuser began to speak, they were deafened by the voice of a much truer and much more trustworthy source, his father, God himself. And in Jesus, and this is, I've talked about it so many times on the podcast. This is why I'm so transfixed and inspired and obsessed with the story of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just reveal, in my opinion, doesn't just reveal the true nature and the image of God, but reveals the true nature, image, and capacity and character of what it means to be human. So Jesus, in everything that he does, isn't just this kind of one-man show to like have us all applauding and doing standing ovations. No, Jesus is saying, this is how you live. What I'm doing here right now is an example of how you live, how you could have always lived. This is what it means to be here. This is what it means to move throughout the world with kindness and compassion and conviction as your magnetic north, that which directs you. This is it. And so when we see Jesus in the wilderness story denying the temptations of the adversary and the accuser, we're seeing our ability and our potential on display. That's what's so provocative and that's what is so 
powerful about Jesus' life. Jesus revealed he had power through his restraint. Adam had no restraint because he wanted power. But Jesus reveals he has power because of his restraint. Jesus reminds humanity of who we truly are. And, I mean, the story of Jesus finds its climax at Easter, as, as you know, with the, with the death and with the resurrection. And the reason I see Jesus as the image of what's capable and the image of what humanity really looks like is because of that story. See, the understanding of sin throughout the scriptures, throughout the human narrative, was the wages of sin lead to death. And I believe that to be completely true. And I think you do as well. Like the, the, the most kind of authentic Greek translation idea of sin is, is like an archer, an arrow being shot and missing the mark, living below the standard and expression of what would be truest and purest for you to be and do and think and, you know, show yourself and reveal yourself to be. That's, that's what sin is. One rabbi called it the disturbance of inner shalom, right? So the disturbance of inner shalom leads to death. And I know that you know that this is true because you, like me, have missed the mark time and time again. And in our unwillingness to admit it and in our unwillingness to reform and to repent, which again, I've talked about in the podcast, repent can be this really heavy idea this heavy word when you think of the street preacher screaming turn or burn but repentance in Greek literally the, the, the word is metanoia it means to change your consciousness it's one of the first things that Jesus ever said he said repent for the kingdom is at hand the message of Jesus isn't you're bad I'm good the message of Jesus is there's a whole new kingdom here there's a whole new way of understanding everything and the current consciousness that you have isn't going to help you embrace it. You have to change the way you think about everything if you want to enter into the invitation that I'm giving you to this kingdom. I mean, I did a whole series called The Kingdom is Yours. So if you want to hear that, dive into that series. But in Jesus's death, he turns the tree of death into the tree of life. He turns a Roman torture device, an image of pain and blood and torture and crucifixion into the source of life everlasting for us. If the wages of sin are death, then Jesus picked up the paycheck. If the payment for our behavior is death, then Jesus paid the bill. Jesus lives a life with all the temptation and with all the trial that we live with and yet didn't succumb to it. He remained restrained. And so he is undeserving of death. And yet he does die. And in his death, he overcomes death and is raised again, rendering the consequence for our sin powerless. There's an incredible uh, saying in the Eastern Orthodox Church, who again have no kind of concept for, the, for original sin. They said, Jesus came to earth in search of Adam, but could not find him. So in death went down to Hades to bring him back. In Jesus, humanity finds its restoration because it's as if Adam is born again in Christ. This is why I'm just so enamored by this story. It's just so, so powerful. There's nothing that I'm saying here which is rendering sin, behavior that brings destruction and death, less than it is at all. I'm, I'm not saying that whatsoever. What I'm, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to provoke the origin of our story to not be one that begins with sin, but actually begins with goodness. Begins with goodness. Because you don't need to be convinced that you have failed. And I don't think that you need to be convinced that you've been a fool. I think you might need to be convinced that you're good and that you're loved. And that when God looks at you, 
smile creases form around his eyes. And that humanity's earliest memory of God is affection. And that you aren't the tool in the belt of a workman. You're a picture in the pocket of a loving father. Every time God looks at you, he smiles. You weren't created to be used. You were created to be enjoyed. There's this crazy line in one of the Gospels. I think it's the Gospel of Matthew where it says, when Jesus was resurrected, the graves in Jerusalem were opened. No one else mentions it. It's just there. And to me, what that says is when Jesus was resurrected, everyone was resurrected. Everyone was resurrected. We all have the opportunity to have this rediscovery of ourselves and rediscovery of what it means to be human and what it means to truly actually be here. I've been going into into prisons in the last 10 years and just doing some work in there. It's some of the most powerful and enriching experiences I've had. It's one of the things I'm most grateful for in terms of the work that I do, that the the writing of words, the creation of poems would get me into these spaces is such an honor for me. I, I know that there's no one that I've ever met in one of those prisons that needs to know any more about how wrong they've been. What I do, what I do wonder is how many of those men have had a moment like Jesus did when their father said, behold, this is my son who I love and who I'm truly pleased about and who my favor rests upon. Because I think it's that story, it's those words that really change us and reshape us. I said to my wife, Kara, a little while ago, if I was to tell you the most profound thing that I've heard in the last decade of my life, it would be this very simple phrase. What you feed grows and what you starve dies. The reason I think it's so profound is because that idea, that phrase is what gives power to everything else I've heard. We, we become what we behold. What grows in our life is what we feed and what starves, dies in our life is what we starve. And when you feed within yourself, the idea that you'll never be anything more than your failures, that will grow within you. But when you starve that idea, it will die. When you feed the idea, the notion, the perspective that the origin story is true, that Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3 and that you are very good, that will grow within you. And so I dare you, my friends, I dare you, to look into the mirror for the next 30 days and say, I see myself and I am very good. I see myself and I am very, very good. Maybe you even write it on the mirror or you save it as the screensaver on your phone. Maybe it's in meditation and centering prayer. You allow yourself to hear the words of God over you that Jesus heard over himself. Behold, this is my son, this is my daughter, who I love, in whom I'm pleased and upon whom my favor rests. It's so interesting that there's this, there's this point in the scriptures in Matthew where Jesus is talking about living a life that is like his, living a life where we, we don't seek retribution, we seek blessing for our enemies where we're prepared to go inward, to deal with the pride and deal with the ignorance and deal with the pain that we feel so that we're less likely to cause it upon others. And he says, it's in Matthew 5, I think 48, he says, therefore be perfect, just as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. And I wanna end with this thought. When he's talking about perfection, He's not talking about our idea of perfection, which is you've never done anything wrong. Perfection in the way of Jesus, perfection in the story of Christ is the practice and the pursuit of our 
original human identity. It's a beholding, a meditating upon, a sitting with the earliest human memory of being loved and favored by God. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Your love for someone else comes out of your awareness of how loved you are. And I'm going to spend next week talking about self-love, self-indulgence, and self-destruction. We're going to go there. But for now, I, I just want, I want, to, I want to encourage you with that. So, so this isn't about becoming perfect. This is about becoming a beginner again. This is, like, what do all beginners do? They practice. And Jesus talks about practicing his ways. So you, you don't try and become perfect. You try to become a beginner. The Buddhists call it the Shoshin. I, I probably absolutely butchered that. But it's like everything you do, you do it for the first time. You buy into the apple and you feel the joy and the wonder of the taste of an apple. You become a beginner and a beginner has to practice. And so tomorrow you begin practicing. What do you practice? Maybe you practice loving yourself. Maybe you practice loving someone else. Jesus' definition of perfection is going back to the beginning and practicing in the ways that are so exemplary, so revealing of someone who believes that truest thing about them, that it's not original sin, it's actually original goodness. It's, it's an, there's an original goodness to who you are and what you're about. There's, there's this story that the ancient Greeks told. Stay with me on this one. The story of the sirens. And the sirens were these like mermaid type creatures that lived in the depths of the sea. And they would rise and sing these beautiful songs. And these songs were so stunning, so capturing, so enthralling that the nearby ships would change their direction and sail towards them. They'd change their course to draw closer to the song of the sirens. But that song would lead them to the rocks and the boats would crash upon the rocks and drowning everyone on board and sinking the cargo and whoever survived, the sirens devoured because they had sharp teeth as well as a beautiful song. This beautiful, tempting song would ultimately lead them to their death. And the story goes that there was this sailor, this captain called Jason. And he discovered a way to avoid the voice of the sirens, to escape their temptation. And what he did was he employed the most incredible, masterful, experienced, excellent musician in all of Greece, called Orpheus and when their boat came to those waters where the sirens would raise their head and begin singing their deathly song their beautiful yet deathly song he commissioned Orpheus to begin playing and the song that Orpheus would play the song that he would sing was so beautiful so much more extravagant and expressive and colorful than the song of the sirens that those on board Jason's ship wouldn't be tempted by their voice, wouldn't be tempted by their song. And ultimately the boat would sail right past them. And you know, in my 10 years of pastoring people, walking alongside people in their most difficult moments from losing a child, to seeing a marriage fall apart, to doing things that brought the most incredible guilt and shame upon them. What I found to be the most profound and liberating thing was introducing a new song, introducing a new story that led them away from the devastation that they felt in the moment that they were living. And it's true for me. I'm gonna get way more into it as this series goes on, but I have failed in the most spectacular way throughout my life. I mean, I just got off tour and I walked out on stage in front of 3,000 people in Newcastle and said, what's up, Birmingham? I mean, I'm just, I'm just touching, scraping the surface there. I'm gonna go into more detail and depth about some of these stories but I mean it 
I know what it feels like to feel shame, to feel condemnation, to feel like your original story is one of mishap and falling down. And what I've realized along the way for myself and for others is without a better song, we'll fall into the trap of the same song that Adam and Eve heard right at the beginning, a song of distrust that leads us to destruction. And the song, the song that I always listen to, the song that I hear and the song that keeps me going every day is the song that Jesus sung, the story that Jesus told, the life that Jesus lived is why I keep coming back to it. It's a song about humanity that is being restored, not through callous discipline, but through forgiveness, not through productivity and, you know, success, but through a admittance of weakness and a dependency upon grace. And that's really where this series is going. I hope that we get to the end and we're able to identify with our failures and we're able to acknowledge that to be a fool is truly to live this life as a beginner and as a practitioner in its truest sense. That's, that's where we're going. And so I, I want to end with this, uh, with this blessing. And it's written by an incredible artist, writer called Jan Richardson. And it's a blessing to speak into the chaos, which is, I think, where we find ourselves more than anywhere else. It's a blessing to speak to the hearts and the souls of each one of us that feel like we need to hear a different song and a better story. To all that is chaotic in you, let there come silence. Let there be a calming of the clamoring, a stilling of the voices that have laid their claim on you, that have made their home in you, that go with you even to the holy places, but will not let you rest, will not let you hear your life with wholeness or feel the grace that fashioned you. Feel the grace that fashioned you. Let what distracts you cease. Let what divides you cease. Let there come an end to what diminishes and demeans and let depart all that keeps you in its cage. Let there be an opening into the quiet that lies beneath the chaos where you find the peace you did not think possible and see what shimmers within the storm. Amen.